We are in a sermon series called God's Family Values. Uh, this is really for God's family. So if you're here uh, and these values sound foreign to you, uh, especially if you have yet to embrace Christ as Savior, they probably will sound foreign to you. Or maybe you're watching online. We're so glad that you've joined us. But as Christians, we can't get over the reality and the grace of God and the work of Jesus that we could be called part of God's family. It wasn't anything we're born into. It wasn't anything we've earned. It wasn't anything religious that we've done. It's all God's grace. It's all through faith. And it's all in this Christ Jesus, his son, through his life, death, and resurrection, that we've been given life, that our sins have been forgiven, and we've been brought into the family. And so we rejoice. We preached on that a few uh, months ago. We looked at a sermon series. We are family. Uh, we are God's adopted family that he's loved before time began. Go figure. Rejoice in that. Celebrate in that. Uh, no matter what condition you find yourself in, if you're in Christ, you have life and life abundantly. But if you are in Christ, there's some family values that we are going through. So this is week four. Uh, we're going to, most of summers, we're going to be looking at uh, God's family values and what they mean to us. And we're going to see that they're on a collision course with much of society's values. We're going to realize that, that God's word, uh, that, that God's people, uh, remember, we're not to conform to this world, but be transformed or take every thought captive. And if we're doing that, uh, we're in a collision course sometimes. And sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable. Uh, and sometimes... Uh, uh, we might even be persecuted for that, but we really need to know, what is it, God? What is it you value? Because if we're yours, we need to value that as well. I don't know if you've noticed. I know that you probably have. How do you not notice? But June has had a transformation. Uh, the month of June has become known as Pride Month, uh, Pride Month, a month to celebrate and to embrace the LGBTQ, and some will add IA to that movement. Uh, this whole month was that. And many organizations that we know, many organizations that we love, many organizations that we support, um, they, they have embraced this. I mean, this is a part of their organization. They want to celebrate what has become of the month of June and, and Pride Month. And one of those organizations, amazingly, is Major League Baseball. Uh, Major League Baseball recognized that this is Pride Month, and they had the teams trying to recognize that as well. Uh, so the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, closest team for us, uh, they were going to have a Pride Night celebrating Pride Month. And one of the things they were doing is they were putting a rainbow, uh, celebrating that on uh, the sleeves of all of their players. Uh, well, there were five players in that game, in a recent game, uh, who... Uh, went in and they said, you know what, putting a rainbow on their uniforms, um, they couldn't do it. Uh, so they removed the logos before they took the field. And you can imagine that caused quite a stir. Um, they elected one of the five, a guy named Jason Adams, uh, who was going to speak for them, uh, Tampa Ray, Ray. There were a total of five of them. And they said, hey, this was a faith-based decision was not to wear the rainbow color logo on their uniform during Pride Night. Uh, again, a night, again, that recognizes and celebrates the LGBTQ community. But what Adam said to me, I thought was brilliant. And I, and I admire and respect him. No matter where you stand on this, I thought it was well-written and very thoughtful. Uh, but he says this. So here he is representing those who refuse to wear that logo. He says, 
a lot of it comes down to faith, to like a faith-based decision. So it's a hard decision because ultimately we all said that we, what, what we want is them, that community, to know that they are welcome and loved here. But when we put it on our bodies, I think a lot of guys decided that it's just a lifestyle that maybe, not that they look down on anybody or think differently, it's just that maybe we don't want to encourage, uh, maybe we don't want to encourage if we believe in Jesus, who encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior, just like Jesus encourages me as a heterosexual male to obtain from sex outside of confines of marriage. It's no different. It's not judgmental. It's not looking down, Adams continued. It's just like when we believe that, that the lifestyle he's encouraging us to live for our good is not to, not to be pursued, that lifestyle. But again, we love those men and women. We care about them, and we want them to feel safe and welcomed here. Well, here's what Adam says. I got faith in Jesus Christ. And because of my faith in Jesus Christ, it's created a worldview. It's created an understanding as I looked at God's word. Adam didn't want to put on his body something that would be representing a lifestyle opposed to a Christian biblical value, he said. Well done, in my estimation, Jason Adams. But the question is, how should we as Christians view this? How should Christians have a certain mindset, a worldview? That's where we are right now in this series, right? Uh, We are looking at God's family values. We are looking at those values. The very first week of this, I preached on basically a Christian worldview that the Bible and following Christ Jesus gives us lenses in which we're to see the gospel or see the world through the gospel that we should see the world differently, we should hope differently, we should love differently, we should communicate differently because we're his, and we should smell like the aroma of Christ, and because we believe in his book and his word, we're the people of the word, and so all of that should shape our worldview. We've looked at this, that scripture says we are to take every thought captive, we should have our antennas up, we shouldn't just go with the flow, if the world is saying one thing, we should take that thought Hold it captive to the obedience of Christ. What does God's word say about this? What has our God communicated about this? Some things he communicates clearly. Some things you got to put together. But what is it? Take that thought captive. And then his word says, listen, don't conform any longer to the world. As Christians, I've set you apart. That's part of the word holy, being set apart. Uh, You have been set apart from me. Don't conform, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as Christians, we got to be, remember, we talked about put on love, right? We don't put on judgment. Uh, we don't throw stones. We don't set ourselves up in a high, lofty seat saying we're smarter, better. We're God's people. No, we put on love. We love our neighbor as ourselves. And we realize, but by the grace of God, there go I. And there's plenty of junk in my own life. So that is where we are. But in God's family values, we, we looked at, we celebrate life because it comes from God because of that. We should celebrate this, uh, this Supreme Court ruling, this recent ruling. Praise God for the preserving of life. We've looked at last week that God values genders, and God sees genders differently than our world does right now. We live in a time um, that, that gender is fluid. Uh, gender may be a choice, um, but according to God's word, it's something precious in his story that he has created. So we celebrate a male. We celebrate 
females because God has made both in his image. This morning, we're going to take tackle the easy-peasy one of God's family value of marriage. So here's what we're going to do. This is important. We're going to look at marriage from a biblical worldview. We're going to look at marriage as how should, how should the Bible shape our understanding, a Christian's understanding of marriage, um, in, in our worldview. This isn't so much a sermon of, hey, you're married, this is how to act. This isn't so much, like, this is what a marriage should look like. I'm going to take this a little bit higher up. I'm going to say we're going to talk about marriage, and let's look at God's word to see what he tells us. How a Christian should hold marriage, not how a Christian should act in marriage. So here's the good news, really good news. So this is for all Christians. So if you're here and you're single, this is not a marriage that has nothing to do with you. This has got everything to do with you. If you're single and you're a Christian, you should know God's view of marriage. If you're married and you're a Christian, you really need to know what his view of that institution you are in as well. But if you're divorced, this is for you. I mean, this is what God's view of marriage. Or if you're widowed or a widower, this is for you. This is God's word. And so there's no one exempt here. So there's no one who gets a day off of not having to listen, no matter where you are, in a marriage or out of a marriage, in a struggling marriage, in a thriving marriage. We are going to look at what God says about marriage. This is so important for us to know, okay? We're going to look at three big things. Marriage is God's creation. We're going to look at marriage as God's love story, and we're going to see marriage is to be honored among all. And because we're looking at the big picture, because um, we are looking at marriage in the whole, uh, the scripture I'm bringing you today is going to start in Genesis. We looked at some of this last week. I'm going to go uh, to Jesus's words in Matthew, and then we're going to go to the writer of Hebrews. So there's going to be three texts, almost covers the entire Bible when it comes to marriage. So let's start in Genesis chapter 2, this incredible story of God creating a female um, from man's substance and bringing the two together. Uh, Again, if you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to go back and listen uh, to that sermon on genders. Uh, I go much more deeper into Genesis 2 than I will today. All right, Genesis 2, starting in verse 18 through 25. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. This is in the garden. This is in the beginning. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every birds of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. Remember last week I showed you that that's God giving man dominion over creation. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. I also showed you last week. That was one way God used to show the man that he was alone. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man says, ho, it's in the Hebrew as far as you know, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here's what God does. He marries him. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Let's turn to Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew. He's in a confrontation with the religious leaders, uh, Pharisees here. I'm going to read Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. The words are on the screen for you as well. And Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's a big thing there, any cause. He answered, I love this, when you talk to a Pharisee and Jesus says, Have you not read? There's great irony here. He's like, you guys are supposed to be smart. You guys are supposed to be the ones who know this. And have you not read is basically a little, you know, it's like, you should know this. Have you not read... Uh, He who created them from the beginning, this is God, made them male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So important. We're going to look at that. Uh, They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And then lastly, we are going to turn uh, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13, verse 4, just one verse there. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Now, Father God, I stand before your people I stand with your word open, just acknowledging how much I need your help. That, Father, that we are living in a time that has redefined marriage. Uh, We have lived in a time that many of us have embraced that redefinition. God, uh, we live in a time that for us to have a biblical view of marriage, uh, it's more than just being seen as old-fashioned. It's just... In our society's eyes, hateful, wrong. God, we need you. We need you to be the one who gives us ears to hear. We need you to be the one who opens up our minds. God, we acknowledge that they've been so tainted by culture and everything around us. God, we need you to open up and soften our hearts. Some in this room right now, their hearts are already hard for this. They're digging in. They feel like they know. So God, even for me, may may all of our hearts be pliable in your hands. You got something for each one of us. God, may we be people that walk in obedience to this. It may not feel comfortable. It may cause a course adjustment. But God, may we be obedient. Because we know as we walk in your truth, we find life and blessing. That you're not ever going to give us a truth to follow that leads us to some place of despair or longing, but ultimately to blessing and goodness. God, speak through a broken sinner. I acknowledge that I see dimly, God. I just don't have the gray matter to to be able to argue with everyone in society or to be able to answer every question. 
But God, you've called me to preach your word. So may I do it with boldness and clarity. Holy Spirit, would you do your part? Because I'm nothing apart from you. May the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And it's in your matchless name that I pray. Amen. All right, I think I might have told you this, but every time I do marriage counseling, and I love doing marriage counseling, I'm, I'm not a counselor, so I just do one, and I try to send them to a real counselor, but I won't marry anybody without giving them some premarital counsel, uh, a little bit of a thought, some things that were given uh, to me, um, which I love, and I love officiating weddings. It's one of the great perks of being a pastor is officiating weddings and being able to have the authority to declare by the power given to me. I mean, you know, you know how that's authority. I'm going to declare them man and wife. It's awesome. I try to use that authority at home. It never works, you know. By the authority invested in me, I declare we're watching this. No, we're not. All right. So, uh, but anyway, for everybody who I've ever had the privilege of officiating, many in this room, um, I will always start with my same question every time for every premarital one. Uh, it's always the same. And I'm telling you that the success rate on this question is very small. I'd say about 3 to 5% get it right, if that much. But it's a very important question. we got to start here. So I always get them set, started. I said, okay, do you guys know who Abner Doubleday is? Do you remember me asking you that, Davis is? Uh, 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 you know, asking you that, Davis and Rachel, that uh, um, Harbin, um, is you know who uh, Abner Doubleday is. How many people here know Abner Doubleday? Okay, I've maybe told you a time. Abner Doubleday, it's very important that you know. You're an American, Julie. You are from Iowa, the field of dreams. Let's go. Abner Doubleday. Well, let me tell you, most people, they're nervous. They're sitting in front of a pastor. You know, they're a little nervous, right? Like, and they're going to talk about marriage. And then the guy asks a stupid question, like, who's Abner Doubleday? And they're starting to think, we've asked this guy to officiate our wedding. This guy's nuts, right? What's going on here? And they're nervous because they got it wrong, and they always think, like, he's got to be some biblical character. It's somebody I know. Who's Abner Doubleday, right? You don't get on the phone. Who's Abner Doubleday? He is the guy who invented baseball. So if you are an American, uh, you should know that. Abner Doubleday invented uh, baseball called America's Pastime, right? Uh, and there are people in our world who think baseball is stupid. There are people who don't like our national pastime. There are people who would like to alter the rules of baseball. People will look at baseball and say, why do you have three bases in home? It's superfluous. Why not just run to second base and back home? And why let nine people in the field? Let's let them all play like we do in soccer. And why is there three strikes and you're out? That's not very fair. Why not give them five? Isn't that more gracious? Right? So you could take all the rules of baseball that Abner Doubleday wrote down and you can change them all, but I'm telling you what, you're not playing baseball unless you follow the inventor's rules. And they're there for a reason. Well, God is the one who created marriage. Marriage is God's creation. So we got to start there, right? So if we want to have marriage according to the rules of marriage, we look to the creator of marriage. Marriage is God's creation. It's God's idea. God created marriage to accomplish. Now watch this. God created marriage to accomplish his purpose and plan. So it's something bigger than you. It's something bigger than me. Marriage isn't just our little love story that we long for, that we look for on Lifetime TV shows. 
Marriage is God's idea, God's creation for God's plan, for God's glory, for God's purpose. Marriage is about him. So God created marriage so that a married man uh, would uh, be, and a woman would be fruitful and multiply, uh, so that the earth would be filled with his glory. If you ever want to know what God is about, and it's rightfully that he is, God is always about his glory, reflecting who he is in his creation. He's always about filling the earth with his glory through his people, and marriage is to do the same. Marriage, a man and a woman, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my glory. So God, because he's the inventor of marriage, he's the one who tells us who is to be married. It tells us very clearly in in Scripture, God created male and God created female in his image. He says in Scripture that both male and female are not only made in his image, but he's blessed them. And I know that we lose this. This is so radically good. God's word is so radically good, especially in an ancient Near Eastern image or culture, to say that a woman is in the image bearer of God, to say that they are equals before God. I know it doesn't seem, we're, we're living a day like, of course they are. But you got to know that when this was written by Moses at the time, um, they only thought that the kings were the image bearers of God, the Pharaoh. But to be told that you are an image bearer of God, that a male is an image bearer of God, that a female is an image bearer of God. But God made them two separate. And again, I know society has blurred all those things, but a woman was created to be a woman, and a man was created to be a man. And they both reflect, they're equal in God's eyes and their beings, but they're different roles. And God created male and female, and he says, as soon as he creates two, what does he do? He brings them together. I love that. I mean, the moment there's two, he makes them one. But who does he make one? He makes it very clear. I made a male and a female. We don't get the full story of who God is until we get male and female. We don't understand his image until we have male and female. And I told you more last week in gender, there's something beautiful he wants to do through marriage. There is one true and living God. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are three separate persons in one living God. Blow your mind mystery. I can't unpack all that for you. But in that reflection of one true and living God that exists in three in one, he wants our marriages to be two in one and to be two separate, male and female. This is his idea to become one. Marriage between a male and female is God's design. Now, here's the most important thing. I think this is where the church misses it. It's God's design. It's more than a moral issue. Most times the church immediately want to jump on the moral issue of of maybe homosexuality being a, a, a sin and an abomination, Scripture might say. And although it is truly a moral issue, to me it's more of a design issue. I begin with the argument of this wasn't God's design. God's design was for a male and a female. This was his plan, and God's plan is good. God wants two different image bearers to become one, not the same image bearers. Um, That is what God has brought together. He, He has brought together a man and a woman. And I love what he says. What God has brought together, what does it say? Let no man put asunder. And what did he bring together? A male and a female. Um, so who are we to redesign that? Now, this is the biblical view of marriage, I believe, and I believe it's pretty clear. Um, I don't expect the government to have the same. I mean, uh, the government can redefine marriage any way they wanted to. 
And that's, that's what they could say. But I think as Christians, we hear first and foremost, not through the lens of government, but through the lens of words, God's words, and what he calls us to. So uh, God is uh, the one uh, who tells us who's to be married. And God tells us the purpose of marriage. Why did God create marriage? Well, I love it. I love the story. It's so amazing. God creates a place where man and God dwell together in harmony. It's called Eden. It's a beautiful place. But he didn't create the whole world that way. But he says, I want to use man and woman to fill the whole earth with my glory. I, I want marriage to fill the earth with his glory. God created marriage for his people to be fruitful and multiply. And to be fruitful and multiply, no matter what happens and who's married, you eventually need to have a male and female for that to happen. I mean, science has been held up at times that we got to value most. Science comes from God, but I'm telling you, you can't multiply without a male and a female. For Christians, but for, for God to tell us to be fruitful and multiply, what does it mean for us? Now, this is very important because these things are soon out. Like, what does that mean? It means be fruitful and multiply, produce Christians. Image bearers in love with God. And the best way to produce image bearers in love with God, the most consistent, best way to do it, guess what it's to do? Have children. Have children that you point to Jesus every day. Have children that you live your life before them as a broken sinner who needs a Savior. Have children that you pray over meals. And you get on your knees, and there's questions you can't answer that you have no idea, but you walk by faith. Have children and grandchildren. Put grandchildren on your knee and whisper in their ears, Jesus loves you. He loves you. And they say, you never want you to have a day where you don't know that he's not a loving God. There's a God who made you fearfully and wonderfully. There's a God who loves you. There's a God who is. And I'm telling you, there's nothing like him. It's having praying for our kids. It's praying for our grandkids. It's through our marriages, through our families. It's praying for our neighbors. But... That's being fruitful and multiplying. And for those of you who are at the stage of grandparents, you better be praying for your grandkids and your great-grandkids. And when you're with them, show them Jesus. Um, it doesn't mean you got to be some moral, perfect person. Be someone in love with Jesus. Um, multiply. God created marriage for us to have dominion over God's creation, to rule and reign for God in the area he brought to us. Now, again, big words. We could get lost. God created marriage to rule and reign dominion. What the heck does that mean for me? It means this. Whatever dominion God has given you in your home, in your work, in your relationships, live for Jesus. Bring light into the darkness. I love this. What he did, bring order into the void. I'm sorry, bring order into the chaos. Bring beauty into the void. That creation thing. That where God has given you dominion, where you go, uh, bring blessings um, advance his kingdom that is what we're called to do so god tells us the purpose of marriage he created marriage for us to be fruitful and multiply he created marriage for us to have dominion and it basically is this to advance god's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven how can you do that in your world that god has given you it's to live for christ your king it's it's to live it's to live in, in submission to christ your king and on mission for christ your king that's it that's advancing christ's kingdom Marriage is the building block of God's kingdom. And, and again, I hope this makes sense. I wrote this sentence. It says, marriage is the irreducible community. It can't get smaller than that. It's the irreducible community that God has chosen to build his, his kingdom. It's marriage. It's the building block of God's kingdom. 
He wants true marriage. It's his creation. It's his idea. And we should not mess with it. And again, as I mentioned earlier, government is not going to recognize God's authority in marriage. They've already gotten rid of God. And they say that this is not a priority to them. And they're going to say that two loving people should be able to do what two loving people, who are you to tell us what happens in the bedroom? Who are you to tell us who should get married? How judgmental of you. And we got to say, well, you know, the government can recognize what the government recognizes, but Christians must recognize what God has clearly told us. We must be people of his word. So not only that, marriage is God's creation. Marriage is God's love story. There's something bigger. And I say this in every wedding that I, that I perform. And listen to it. And it, it gets a little tricky. You can get lost. But I say this in every wedding. To understand God, one must first understand marriage. And to understand marriage, one must have a knowledge of God. People are like, whoa, that sounds terrible. Because I'll say this, watch this. Why? Because the Bible begins with a wedding, and it ends with a wedding feast. I mean, you want to talk about understanding God? He's going to tell you his will. God wants to say, I love you, and he's going to use the language of marriage. He loves you so much that here's the second thing. Christ calls us his bride. We are the bride of Christ. So God wants to lavish a love on us. So he's saying, I want to use this institution of marriage, and this institution of marriage is going to be the, the, what I communicate my love through. I'm going to tell them that I am ultimately the, their ultimate husband. I'm going to tell them that ultimately they are my bride. I'm going to tell them how much I love them through the language of marriage. So watch this. How important is marriage to God? Not only did he create it, but he wants to tell you he loves you through marriage. So how does he want you to reflect marriage? To look like him. And that's all the things that flow out of that is just the reality of, of why he wants marriage this way. The Bible begins with a wedding, it ends with a wedding feast, and the church is the bride of Christ. Now stick with me, I want to read you one more passage. We read it last week. It's Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, many people look to this as duties of husbands and wives. Many times we've heard this in marriage ceremonies, and rightfully so. But what I love about this is you and I have a hard time figuring out, is Paul talking about marriage or is Paul talking about Christ in the church? Because he just weaves them together in a way. It's like, huh, which one is he talking about? And you're like, yeah. He wants marriage and the church and his relationship to the church so closely aligned that that's what marriage is for, to remind us of who we are in Christ Jesus. Listen to these words. Ephesians 5. Wives, submit yourself to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. They're equals, but even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blame or blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see she respects her husband. It's so beautiful. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing about marriage and the church all at the same time. And say, basically, God has given us marriage as his love story to show his oneness now here watch this marriage is to reflect our oneness with christ isn't that interesting marriage is to reflect our oneness with christ it's to show our union with christ as two become one we are one with christ and it isn't interesting what genesis 2 says a father shall leave a, a, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh now watch this put your seatbelt on this is cool jesus is the one who left his father. Jesus is the one who left his father and cleaves to his wife, the church, and the two become one. I mean, it's a reflection of who he is and how he loves us so that we could be one with Christ. So much marriage is God's love story that you read through scripture and guess what he calls our sin? Adultery. He calls it adultery. Why? Well, because it's our choosing anything over the Lord. It's pursuing anything. It's like you're, 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 you're committing adultery. You're running after the wrong things. I'm here. I'm your Savior. I, I, I'm the one who, you're your provider. I'm your lover. I'm your friend. Why are you going over there? You're committing adultery. You're giving your heart to false gods, whether it's money or sex or fame or fortune. You're giving your heart to the wrong thing. It's adultery. Come to me. Come back to me. You know, the thing I guess got to mention briefly is, does God hate divorce? A lot of times we take that passage out of Malachi 2. We often hammer people over the head with it. We often use it to guilt people that have been divorced. But let me just say, if marriage is to be a reflection, now watch this. If marriage is to be a reflection of the oneness of our oneness with Christ, now you know more why he hates it. Why? Because listen to this. Jesus is never going to divorce you. This is, this is a true, deep biblical truth. It's called eternal security. If you are in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. You can't mess it up so much that he says, oh, I'm done. Divorce them. Send them away. He says, no, no, no. My life was sufficient for them. My death was sufficient for them. My love will never stop for them. I will never let them go. I will never divorce them. I hate divorce because divorce shatters. Divorce breaks. Divorce tears apart, and I hate that. I want to bring together and make one. It doesn't mean that if you're divorced that you're cursed. It doesn't mean that you've committed the unforgivable sin. Can you see the bigger picture of why he says these strong words, of our oneness in him, our eternal security with him. I think God hates seeing the pain of divorce. I think he hates seeing the consequences. As a youth pastor for 10 years, I saw it all the time. As a pastor for the last 30 years, I've seen it all the time. The pain of divorce. God makes a vow and he keeps it. Don't forget that. God makes a vow and he keeps it. And he asks us to keep ours. Even when it doesn't feel right. Even when it costs us something. God does allow for divorce. It's not the unforgivable sin. Scripture mentioned one for adultery. 
uh, also for abandonment. You can talk with your elders if you're wrestling with that because we take God's word very seriously. And then lastly, marriage is to be honored among all. And then the writer of Hebrews says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Marriage should be pure. Our relationship with God should be pure in Christ Jesus. Our relationship with our spouse should be pure. And what does this mean? It means it's not just for those in same-sex attracted marriages. It's for all of us. I love what that baseball player, Josh Adams, says. Hey, because of what God has said, that I shouldn't be having a relationship outside of marriage. I shouldn't have sex before marriage. I shouldn't physically give myself to one who I've yet to give a vow to that I'm theirs and they're mine. And again, to say that in today's culture, you want to say, are you serious? Yeah, God's serious. That's an ultimate gift that he gives. But he wants you to give more than just yourself physically. And we rush to give ourselves away physically before we do spiritually or make a vow to that person. That's how important it is to God. Keep the spirits of the marriage bed pure. How easy is that to do these days? With porn, with our world around us. But that's God's call. Uh, let me take a minute on marriage and singleness. I, I'm, I'm really done. This is wrap-up stuff. This is extra stuff for no extra charge. This is the good stuff. Being a pastor for so long, I, I've seen so many who are single that just lament that there's something wrong. That if they could just find that spouse, they would be complete. And I think Hallmark has sold us a bill of goods that there's somebody out there that's going to complete you. And there's somebody out there that's going to be your soulmate. And you're going to find them, and you're going to ride horses on the beaches together. But the bottom line is, God has made you in his image, and sin has broken all of us. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, probably Solomon, says, God has put eternity in our hearts. Now watch this. If eternity is in our hearts, does a marriage fill eternity? Heck no. Is there a man, ladies, that can fill what's broken in your heart? Heck no. Men, is there a woman who can make it all right? Heck no. Right? They can't. Sometimes they're going to magnify what's wrong. And sometimes they're going to break even more pieces, right? And I, I can't tell you as a pastor how many people I've, I've seen that just feel like, I'm just, if I could just find that right one, I'm going to be okay. And I say, you have found the right one. His name is Jesus. And that's the right one. And don't think for a minute that a gold band on your finger is going to complete something in you. Now, marriage is a blessing. And it does bring great blessings with it, oftentimes. But if you're single, and if that's where you are right now, you're not cursed, you're not less, you're not second. You're loved. You're his. You matter. Okay? So I, I don't know what God has for us. I, I hope it's blessing. Gosh, get emotional, kids. So... Only God can fill that hole inside of you. And let me tell you about marriage in the gospel. You know what marriage in the gospel is? Being married as Christians, nothing shows you how much you need God's grace in marriage, right? Because your greatest neighbor you live with is, the, is your spouse. And if you don't think that you ought to live in faith and repentance in marriage, I mean, marriage shows you how broken you are. Marriage shows you how desperate you need Jesus. Marriage shows you. I mean, there's wounds in that, that marriage creates that are unlike anything else. But marriage in Christ Jesus uh, is keeping him at the rightful place. And it magnifies the reality that we need God's grace. 
every step of the way. I, I love telling in the marriage counseling, let me tell you something. God wants to take two broken people and making them one. Now think about the logistics of that. If you're broken and your spouse is broken, you take two broken things and you make them one. How do you do that without cutting each other to pieces? Well, the only way you do it is by the grace of God and the gospel. But we know that there, those two become in one. There's a lot of cuts, aren't there, folks? No one has wounded Katie the way my wounds have. No one has hurt her the way I have. Love her, the love of my life. I mean, my 35 years of marriage, so grateful. I say this to everyone I marry, that, that, that marriage is greater than I ever dreamed, and I'm a dreamer. But it's harder than I ever imagined. And then there's my son, the photographer, who's at many of my weddings. He said, I'm just waiting for you to say, Dad, marriage is better than I dream, and I'm a dreamer. And marriage is harder than I imagined, and I'm imaginary. <laughs> but I haven't blown it yet. I haven't said it. But it is hard. So just a word for those of you in your first year of marriage, your 50th year. And Robbie, how many years do you have? 61. 61. Uh, Harbin's, what do you guys have? One. Hetty. How many months do you have? How many? Six months? Well, you're married to Jake, so that's just pure bliss. <laughs> it's hard. Robbie, 61 years. Is it easy? You married your high school sweetheart, right? I don't understand what? See them. It's a great thing. See them in Christ Jesus. So hard. No one's got a perfect marriage. Don't think that your neighbor has one. Don't think that the person sitting next to you has one. Don't think your pastor has a perfect marriage. All right? It's a struggle for all of us. But it should be honored among all. It's a great institution that God's given us. And I'm telling you, if God gives you a spouse, you found a good thing. But if you're single, you are blessed in Christ Jesus. All right? Um... Let's, let's be remind, mindful as we really do close that a call to Christians is not for us to be open-minded when it comes to marriage. It's not a call to be progressive and liberated by society. If you're a follower of Christ, your call is to be biblical. What does God say about marriage is most important? God created marriage, God defines marriage, and God uses marriage for his purpose and his glory. Who is Abner Doubleday? He gives rat stains. But Jason Adams is my brother in Christ who stood up and said, I believe in God's values, and I'm going to follow him. Who is God? Well, it's his word that matters most. And may we be people that honor him. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, Wow, uh, I think I preached a sermon that many in our society would want to tar and feather me right now. They'd call me a homophobe. They'd call me names. And God, I want to be faithful. We want to be faithful people. We want to acknowledge that you have the authority over marriage. We want to acknowledge that you're the creator of marriage. We want to acknowledge that you've done it for your glory, not for ours, our, our glory. It is for our good, ultimately. God, again, I, I thank you for being a pastor of a congregation with married people, with divorced people, with widow or widowers. 
with singles. What an honor it is to pastor all of them. But God, I thank you more importantly for your love for each one of them and your sovereign plan. And God, I pray for the single person who feels so incomplete without a spouse. God, I pray the gospel fills them up. I pray for the marriage that has crumbled, uh, that's all that is left is just a parting of ways. God, be merciful and kind. God, I know that there are those in this congregation struggling deeply. I know that there are those in this congregation who have struggled deeply. Uh, And God, for all of us, we need grace and mercy. But God, we need the right understanding of who you are and what you've called us to do. May we be obedient, obedient people, and may we be the aroma of Christ. I pray in Christ's name.